When thousands of objects were gathered into museums at the end of the 19th century, it was argued that they could provide object lessons in human culture. The object lesson was thought of as a tangible example of an abstract principle, but was also supposed to teach people how to act by showing the details of a bad situation. What lessons do African objects have for us in the 21st century? What can we learn from them about Africa's long relationship with Europe? What can they teach us about being and becoming human? These are some of the questions we want to return to in our conversations with scholars, curators, artists and activists. African Object Lessons is an opportunity to go deeper, to hear different perspectives and to think in, about and beyond the museum. My name is Benjamin Efodaze and I'm a Collections Assistant in Anthropology at MAA Cambridge. My name is Chris Wingfield and I'm an Associate Professor in the Arts of Africa at the Sainsbury Research Unit in Norwich. So uh, we're talking today to uh, Yvonne Chioma Mbanefu and we're really, really pleased to have you here. You've been doing some uh, really interesting things around the Reentanglements Project. But maybe uh, to start with, Yvonne, if you could just tell us a little bit about yourself and your background um, and how you've kind of got to, got to where you are now. Thank you, Chris and Benjamina, for having me. I am based in London. Um, uh, my background is mainly um, digital media, higher education and um, e-learning. But I got into the um, cultural heritage space. Um, I would say unwittingly as a little girl, because I was born in, in England, in London here, but um, grew up in Enugu, Nigeria. So um, we moved back to Nigeria when I was about six years old and um, in a bid to get me to learn Igbo language, I spent a lot of time with my grandparents and my grandfather was um, a headmaster and a translator for colonial administrators. So that meant that every opportunity was turned into a mini lesson on language or culture or anything. <laughs> so, um, but I didn't realize just how interested I was until I had my own children and I wanted them to learn about the culture being away from Nigeria. So that's what ultimately led me into this um, field. So I've run the Igbo conference for 10 years at SOAS University of London. And I've done a lot of um, things in a language like dictionary and um, done you know, research in so many different places, all relating to Igbo language and culture. Uh, how did you, um, you know, get involved in um, the um, Thomas project, the Reentanglements project? Um, on our, in our second year of starting Igbo conference, um, we had a gentleman come and talk to us about the North Coast Thomas photographs, but we didn't. He didn't mention the name of the person that took the photographs. I wanted to do a PhD, but um, eventually didn't get the funding for it. So um, because Professor Paul Basu works at SOAS, he came to us and said he wanted to talk about a project he was starting. But by the time he finished talking to us about it, we, I, we realized it was the same person, but we didn't appreciate the amount of material that was collected. So, um, Eventually, he asked whether we could join him 
and um, you know found out about the skills I had and that's basically how I willingly got roped into the project. Your background is in kind of digital media and new media um, and, and one of the interesting things about the sort of Thomas collection is the way in which you know um, that that expedition they were engaged in kind of new media um, photography was reasonably new but also sound recording and I guess it's where this kind of sound recording has been something that you've had quite a lot of engagement with but I guess we're not talking about digital recordings like we're doing today um, for Thomas. Yes um, I found it quite fascinating um, in as much as he obviously had um, challenges he I noticed that he was quite creative as well in the way he collected the assets and um, although at times we got frustrated because we couldn't, you know, match setting um, objects with the recordings and he didn't put names of the people that, you know, made the recordings, um, he still gave enough material to be able to, you know, build a whole picture of what was going on at that time. These recordings um, you're talking about, are they uh, music? Uh, are they, you know, conversations of people? Are they sort of sounds of the environment? What, what are these recordings? They cover a whole range of um, human activity from women going to the market and singing to burials to events. Um, there are um, chants by diviners, um, secret societies, um, folk tales, conversations, um, all, all sorts of, um, you know, interactions from everyday life. There were also um, recordings of, you know, musical instruments and um, just so many things. Do you get a sense from the recordings how how they were able to get people to agree to this and how how you know do you think people were reluctant or happy or you know do you get any sense from them of, of, of the background to actually being recorded? Because I already saw some pictures I could tell that some of the pictures um, the subjects were willing to be you know to to feature in the pictures with the audio, it wasn't that obvious. I mean, um, a couple of recordings, I could tell they were quite suspicious and telling themselves, well, what is he doing with this thing? You know, <laughs> what does he want? And, um, but mostly, um, I think the novelty of hearing, knowing that it's been captured. And, you know, there's this thing that people, like to put on a show when they think you know that they're they're the center of attention so um i i got the sense that even they by the time he did a lot of the recordings they were already used to him and i guess from the um, technology of photographs they had to sit for a while before the actual click happened so which also made them not as you know um, natural in the photographs but the audio I personally think the audio is quite richer than the actual images that were taken because there's so much that could um because I noticed that when I I shut my eyes I felt like I was there but I'm obviously not there 
and the motion uh, emotion conveyed by the different people talking gives you a sense of what's going on what life was like what their thoughts were what so are on. some of the conversations that you remember from from these recordings that you've listened to um, there are quite a lot and uh, unfortunately some of them are distorted so um, sometimes we couldn't get anything at all because of the type of technology used and but um, they're quite remarkable ones there was one that was um, asking the white man to please come and help him that he's got a wound you know and that he needs treatment um, there are ones that were talking about the white man in a, a not so complimentary way and saying, oh, well, this man is always walking around trying to take things. I won't, <laughs> they don't know what he, he's going to do with it, whether he's going to use um, the things he's taking from them as juju or, <laughs> or not. And um, you see people haggling over goods in the market, um, people singing about um, births and deaths. And um, I found the ones about, um, you know, deaths strangely, uh, um, you know, enlightening because they were like um, ones that were announced, death announcements, and there were ones that were, you know, sort of um, talking about the person and what they did in life and how they treated people. There were ones about um, children, um, you know, a, ch a child treating his siblings well and the other one not treating siblings well. There were quite a lot of um, folk tales, but strangely, I noticed that some of those folk tales were, a lot of the folk tales were quite um, vicious, if I would use that word, a lot of blood and killing. And I, I know that that's not, the typical stories you would tell a child. So I kind of guessed from the recording that they were, because they were being recorded, they wanted to, you know, give the shock effect and, <laughs> you know, for more impact. And again, I think it depends on the person he recorded, what their own interests were. And um, there were people singing um, war songs and, um, one remarkable one of um, the son of the Ezenri. Enri is the historical um, birthplace of Igbo people, which it's debatable, but that's usually where is the spiritual home of Igbo land. So when something happens in Igbo land, people would go to Enri for the um, abomination to be cleansed. So that particular one, that particular recording was quite unique in that the son of um, Ezenri was talking about how, you know, um, the land is being spoiled by the government and that Igbo people can correct the land again. And um, because we were able to trace the picture of the person that said it, he also put more life to, to, to what he said. The recordings are made on these wax cylinders um, and presumably there are assistants, translators like your grandfather working with Thomas who is setting up the conversations and so I mean do you think that that 
Thomas had a sense of what was being said or and do you think people thought that he did or do you think it was a kind of a private conversation that got recorded um you know that was that was much more to do with the the people who were working with Thomas and their engagement with 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 people in the places he visited he would have depended a lot on them because they were the go-betweens and I also think that depending on the individuals he worked with at certain times some some would have been you know um honest and you know walking hand in hand with him others would have abused the privilege and maybe you know did things they shouldn't have which in turn you know could distort the quality of the material collected i guess i was wondering about whether there are things that you find in the recordings that maybe wouldn't have been said directly to thomas because people in speaking in Igbo. And because they're, you know, and some of the things you said about the criticism of the way the government's behaving or, you know, the suspicions about the white man and what he's doing, I, you know, I kind of wonder whether we get, you get a glimmer of something. That... Oh, definitely. And, um, about five or six of the recordings, um, I got different, you know, contrary um, translations to what was said, um, either as a result of the translators not being able to um, convey the right sense or them going completely off tangent on what was said. For example, um, one that was um, <clears throat> openly criticizing the white man and um, them writing something else. And then at the same time, um, some of them were saying you know, things and then the translators may feel, oh, it's not politically correct. And then just write their own glossed over version of the translations i was wondering what was going on because it wasn't matching with what what was um translated and what was said yeah and i guess this this type of uh you know information you are finding from the recording i think it speaks to the agency that people had um in terms of you know this is what we choose to 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 translate for him this is what we, we decide is appropriate for him to know and to take to you know his government. What do you think about, about that? And I ask that question specifically because, you know, oftentimes thinking about sort of the, the long history uh, you know, between Africa and Europe and sort of colonial power uh, and colonial violence, there's often this sort of um, idea that people didn't have any agency, people couldn't decide anything for themselves. Um, you know, the white man comes in, uh, takes and decides and then leaves. Um, but what I'm, I'm, I'm hearing from, from some of the recordings you are, you are uh, telling us is that people actually chose to say things and not to sort of make them official. What do you think? Yes, there was a sense of him coming to take what he wanted. But at the same time, um, it was also some of the notes he wrote from his own you know, perception of what he was seeing, which I find like in so many things, what um, the, the, the worldview and the mindset was different. So because they weren't um, steeped in that culture, there were some things they didn't understand and they just um, put that Eurocentric view on it. Um, one example is um, what we what we know as masquerade. In the midst of all the violence happening, 
things being taken from them, they still, you know, had that um, subtle power of leaving something behind for us to pick up on and dissect, you know. So um, I think they probably thought they had the upper hand, the colonizers, but they were, you know, breadcrumbs still left by the people who, you know, who, 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 quote unquote, were, were stripped away of what they had. Because there were some items, for example, that I saw that I know that it wouldn't have been willingly given um, to not good Thomas, even though it was written that it was bought. For example, a stool taken from the chief of Umuchuku, that is at MAA now, it wouldn't, it wouldn't, a, a regent, a, a sitting regent would not hand his stool over. So, and I'm, I know that because of, I know the culture I come from. For the purposes of um, his records, he would write, yes, it's um, bought for so, so, so amount. But I know unless someone stole the stool and then sold it to him, a sitting regent will not hand over his stool of office to anybody. Coming back to what you were saying, yes, there were subtle ways that they kind of maintained control, but which, um, you know, have has left breadcrumbs for us to pick up on. I'm really interested in the idea of the breadcrumbs and that kind of summons up the sort of Hansel and Gretel following, following the trace. And obviously part of the project has been about kind of following these traces. Um, back through that experience, you know, that, and, 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 and this kind of colonial context in which the expeditions were carried out. Um, you were talking a little bit about the masked spirits, um, and I was thinking about, um, you know, Igbo land, and, and I think one of the most famous kind of depictions of, of the colonial encounter is um, Achebe's Things Fall Apart, um, and that kind of vision of, of, of different people, you know, with different backgrounds negotiating this colonial setting and, and kind of pursuing that. Um, and I guess, you know, that's a, that's a perspective coming from a Nigerian writer and, and, and you know, in a perspective, but I wondered, you know, can you see traces of, of those sorts of dynamics um, coming through in the sound recordings of some people who are, you know, who are pursuing, you know, a, a alignment with the new colonial power and other people who are more associated with established tradition and those sort of conflicts? Yes, um, I, I noticed, um, because um, I thought the songs would um, be purely, um, you know, traditional, but for some of the songs, I noticed um, references to the changing times. And um, one of the songs had something to do with the white man, he's come again, you know, he's come to take, and then, Another song saying, oh, the white man has brought good things like um, fabric and things. So I, I guess <laughs> there's a kind of bribery going on, you know, <laughs> to appease them and let give him access. Uh, but I mean, it could, it could be bribery to some, it could be incentive to some. So depends on which way you look at it. For example, in one of the images, um, one of the... Um, explanation for the images there were people who who were saucers who would get things you know to get give give to sell to not put thomas and so i mean i guess sometimes he wouldn't know where the things were collected from whether they were stolen or you know bought and given to him 
So, um, I mean, the audio, uh, like I said, I don't know if I've said it before, um, but each time I listen to one piece of audio over and over again, I'm able to get something different, something new. One of the uh, questions that uh, we are exploring um, in these conversations is the idea of the the lessons that um, these uh, these materials and in this case these uh, recordings um, give us uh, in the twenty first century. So I wonder um, what are your your thoughts about the value of these historic items uh, in uh, in in this century uh for for you as as um you know as someone belonging to the uh Igbo culture and so you know on a personal level but also as a as a general um offering to to you know all of us i think that um objects and you know all these materials still um represent a a priceless resource for everyone, I mean, it doesn't matter whether the person is um, from Igbo land or, you know, from Scotland or wherever. Um, in this day and age of, um, you know, digital technology and storytelling, there's so much that can be gotten from there, from, you know, from the pictures and from the objects. Um, they, for example, the, the images, I was able to see hairstyles you know, for men and women. And prior to seeing the Thomas collection, I didn't know that um, Igbo men had elaborate hairstyles up until the late 1930s. So it was through um, the Thomas collection that I was able to see what men, what the fashion was at that time. And um, even going on the hairstyles as well, the, the hairstyle I've got now I didn't realize that um, people had micro locks in Igbo land until my own daughter pointed it out from the Thomas images. And I'd been looking at the Thomas images for months and months. And it took my my 16 year old to come and say, oh, they've got um, micro locks. <laughs> so that's an example of just how you know, you come in and you notice something else and, you know, so, and um, at the moment I'm, I'm designing a range of fabric and I'm getting inspiration from the Uli paintings on the walls. So there's just so much, it, it, I mean, it can be applied to so many different things. And um, from the audio, um, the, the the songs can be turned into whole films or soundtracks or different things or, or choruses for things or even um you know com compositions musical um scores so it's it all depends on who comes into contact with it and decides you know gets that kind of spark of inspiration it, it kind of really strikes me in in listening to you talk on that that I mean the, the focus sometimes in thinking about collecting particularly colonial collecting is about you know taking things from a place to another place taking things from Nigeria to Britain but but one of the interesting things about sort of museums is that they also take things through time um, 
And so it's something that, you know, from 100 years ago that you're able to engage with. And in the case of the sound recordings that you can kind of hear the voices of people speaking from 100 years ago. Um, and for me, that that's really, really striking. I mean, you know, certainly in a Southern African context, the idea of hearing the ancestors speak is, is really, really important. And there's a whole set of technologies about how you do that. But, you know, the fact that in this case, you know, you've been transcribing these materials and bringing the voices of the ancestors into, into, the, into the present. I mean, I kind of wonder what, what, what do they have to say? I mean, and what do those voices bring for us in, into that present? Because there's not much um, rec records kept in, in, in Africa, um, Nigeria, for example, these um, recordings, because they're not, um, they can be replicated now that they've been digitized, unlike the physical collections in, in the museums. So people are able to, you know, you know, sort of do have more access to it because there's been this, you know, um, debate about the places that these things were taken from, but people in those places don't have access to them. So um, I think that, for example, the audio collections, you know, present uh, an easy way of at least transporting these things to to those places and you know kind of giving them an idea what you know what life was like what their thoughts the worldview um because i'm in i'm in um i'm in the um, linguistic space i've been able to compare what words that were being used then and what words that you know are still in use now and surprisingly for me um, the, there were there are changes, but not that much because I was I could easily understand what they were saying over a hundred years ago. Do know. you see your culture differently now that you have dealt with this material? Um, and I asked that question specifically because your your child pointed out to you how the people in the photographs have uh, microlocks. Um, Yet, you know, in, in a place like uh, Nigeria, currently having locks is not well seen. Um, you know, um, it, it's not it's not something to be so to be proud of necessarily. Um, yet, hundred years ago, people had locks uh, in Nigeria, and you know, it's the culture. Um, so, do you see this? You see your culture differently now. I see my culture differently. I appreciate my culture more. I um, it, it's it's also increased an anger in me, which um, because I feel we've lost so much, most especially when you come to the spirituality space, because it's actually made me research more about Igbo spirituality and. Um, in, in my quest for more knowledge, I've found out that Christianity in Nigeria and in Iboland has actually caused more damage in that because in Igbo spirituality, you find that, um, you know, punishment was instant, but in a Christian um, religion, you could always go and ask for forgiveness.
So now people do what they like and then say, oh, I can always ask for forgiveness. So I, I believe it's create, you know, created more harm on a, on, on a uh, you know, morality space. But um, at the same time, it's, it's giving me, you know, that confidence and that happiness that, quote, you know, there's, there's a, a method, you know, to the madness. So the things that um, we saw as, um, you know, being people being primitive and not being intelligent, that they were actually deeper than, you know, philosophical and had knew what they wanted and knew were living rich, um, you know, enriched lives there. So there's just so much I could, um, I've been finding out and, you know, having the test for. But um, I, I would say it's made me a very um, proud Igbo woman. And um, it's also given me, I mean, engaging with um, the Notco Thomas um, collection has turned this into a lifelong um, project for me. So it's going to be a, an ongoing, an ongoing engagement. I, I was interested, I'm really interested that you talked about Christianity. And I think Benjamina and I both have an interest in the history of Christianity in Africa and the degree to which that's sometimes seen as being a, a complete break. Um, and 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 the and and the the concern that people sometimes have about things associated with the pre-Christian time and um, and those kinds of things. But I guess I also wonder sometimes how much of a continuity there also is between pre-Christian and, and some Christian practices. And I I don't know whether that came through in in in, in your engagements with the Thomas collection. Whether there are elements of 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 a rupture and change and loss, but also some sense of continuities. There are um, a lot of changes. Um, for example, you know, the way, for example, in, in burials and um, obviously everyday rituals, but at the same time, they're still enduring things like um, some beliefs still linger on. Because even the most, um, you know, Christian person in, in Igbo land still say some things that are linked to um, indigenous Igbo religion and they don't they do it without realizing that they're doing it so they say some things like chimo chi is like your guardian angel in Igbo spirituality so even the most and I smiled to myself one day a bishop was like chimo and I just looked at him and <laughs> this guy doesn't know what he just said you know and he's a a bishop in a Catholic church. <laughs> <laughs> so it's amazing how, you know, they coexist beside each other. Yeah. And um, in, in, in re-engaging re with the, you know, materials um, from the um, Northcote Thomas archive and a part of Igbo land, we were able to find out that uh, um, the site of a, a, a traditional Igbo spiritual shrine that healed people is now the site for a christian church and they're saying that the powers are due to you know the christian god but obviously the, the stream which was used to heal you know was still um, magical that it was healing people even when there was no christianity there so it's interesting how you know one religion has taken over and not realizing that the other one was that the 
the object that was being used to heal what has been there all along. Wow. Yvonne Chioma, thank you so much for speaking with us. Thank you very much. This podcast was introduced and presented by Dr. Chris Wingfield and Benjamina Efodaze. Our guest, Yvonne Choman Banefu, is an e-learning specialist making African languages accessible through digital and traditional media. She's the founder of Learn Ibo Now, co-convener of the annual international Ibo conference and a co-organizer of the Legacies of Biafra touring exhibition. She's the best-selling author of the first of its kind illustrated Ibo dictionary for children.